Hello and welcome to this week's International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. This week we're journeying all the way back to 2011 for an event featuring Irish writer John Boyne and Pulitzer Prize winning American author Paul Harding. We now live in a time of information overload. We are never far from a screen. We are in danger of being blogged and tweeted out of existence, or maybe that should be into existence. And existence seems to be more and more frenzied. Frantic and frenzied seem to be the order of the day. But this evening we are celebrating two extraordinarily fine novels, John Boyne's The Absolutist and Paul Harding's Tinkers, novels that when you sit down to them make and create a space within the reader and in their quiet way allow us to inhabit complete worlds, worlds that allow us to go beyond observation and information and offer insight, understanding, wisdom. John Boyne was born in Dublin, was educated at Trinity and attended the creative writing course at the University of East Anglia. He has reached a worldwide audience with his novel The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, now translated into over 40 languages, a novel known in the trade as a real win-win, a crossover novel, a novel read by young and old. Boyne has been awarded several literary prizes here in Ireland, in Spain, Germany, Belgium, Italy. He is, in Mariella Frostrup's words, stratospherically successful. The Absolutist, his seventh novel for adults, and a recent book at bedtime on Radio 4, tells of 17-year-old Tristan Sadler, who fought and survived the Great War. It opens in Norwich in 1919, when Tristan, on his 21st birthday, visits Marion Bancroft, a sister to Will, now dead, and as the novel unfolds, Boyne explores the deep, complex, troubled friendship between Will Bancroft and Tristan Sadler. Boyne brings us to Aldershot, where a regiment prepares for war. He brings us to the horror of the trenches, and at the heart of the novel is this powerful questioning of war, friendship, masculinity, desertion, cowardice. The dialogue here is one of the novel's many strengths, dialogue that prompts the important questions. Place, be it a room in a boarding house, an army barracks, a vicarage, or the mud, the lice, the shit of the trenches, is brought alive, and the conventions of early 20th century sexuality and desire are expertly, impressively handled. It is a book of deep sentiment, and to its credit, there's not a scrap of sentimentality in sight. Cullum Tobin was spot on when he called The Absolutist a wonderful, sad, tender book. Paul Harding is American, and this is his first ever Irish appearance. He grew up in Wenham, north of Boston, graduated from UMass, toured the US and Europe with his band Cold Water Flat, and later attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop. But more importantly, Paul Harding wrote a novel called Tinkers. It is a first novel. It is 191 pages long. It was published by a small literary publishing house and it won the Pulitzer Prize. Let me repeat that. Paul Harding wrote his first novel and it won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and it deserved to. Hailed by critics and readers, his deceptively slight book is a beautiful, multi-layered meditation on living, on dying, and traces three lives through three generations. Margaret Atwood says that time is not a line but a dimension. In Paul Harding's Tinkers, an old man, George Washington Crosby, lies dying. We enter George's mind, and Harding brings his reader journeying back and down through time. Tinkers is a hymn to what Harding calls this world of light and hope. It is a novel that tells a story, but its triumph is in the telling, capturing as it does the mystery and strangeness of our being alive and the vividness of the natural world. And there are wonderful, unforgettable descriptions. For example, when a character, Howard, has an epileptic seizure, we read that it was as if there were a secret door that opened on its own to an electrical storm spinning somewhere out on the fringes of the solar system. Paul Howard is now working on his second novel, featuring characters from his first. I mentioned Margaret Atwood earlier, 
and August Kleinsailer mischievously quoted her on Wednesday evening when he was asked about author readings. Atwood says that having read a book and wanting to meet the author is akin to having eaten a plate of foie gras and then wanting to meet the goose. Not so, I say. An event like this allows for a special and individual perspective. It allows us to understand and appreciate the books we admire even more. And therefore I say, please welcome John Boyne and Paul Harding. Uh, thank you, and uh, good evening. Whenever I'm confronted by one of these types of mics, I feel like I'm in the King's Speech. Um, uh, thank you for all, all for coming out tonight. Um, it's, a, it's, it's good to be here. It's a pleasure to sh share the stage with, with Paul. Um, I'm going to be reading from uh, my new novel, The Absolutist. Uh, just to put a little preface on it to, of what I'm going to read, um, it's narrated, uh, as Niall said, by a young man called Tristan Sadler. And Tristan has arrived in Norwich. He's going to spend a day in Norwich meeting with um, a young woman called Marion Bancroft. And Marion is the sister of Will, who we learn in the early pages of the book, has been shot in um, the trenches, or shot in France uh, by his own army as a conscientious objector. Tristan has traveled here to, on the pretext of returning a set of letters to Marion that fell into his possession after Will's death. That's not the real reason for his visit. Um, he's not sure if he's going to be able to reveal the real reason or not. He's a young man who's weighed down with guilt and remorse and shame. And this meeting is the first meeting between Tristan and, and Marion, where they're both um, quite nervous of each other. I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting, said Marion. Did you say you arrived last night? Yes, on the late afternoon train. But you should have said. We could have met then if it was more convenient for you. You wouldn't have had to stay the night. I shook my head. Today is fine, Miss Bancroft. I just didn't want to leave it to chance in the morning, that's all. The trains from London can still be quite unreliable. It is dreadful, isn't it? She said. Do you think things will ever get back to normal? Someday, yes. When? I grow fearfully impatient, Mr. Sadler. And not this century, anyway, I replied. Perhaps the next. Well, that's no good. We'll all be dead by then, won't we? Is it too much to ask for decent transportation during one's lifetime? She smiled and looked away for a moment, out towards the street where a delegation of schoolchildren was marching past in military formation. Was it awful? She asked. And I looked up, surprised that she should ask such a loaded question so soon. The train journey, she added quickly, noticing my disquiet. Did you get a seat? I didn't mind it, I replied. I met someone I vaguely knew on board. Well, that's something, I suppose. Do you read, Mr. Sadler? Do I read? Yes, do you read? I hesitated, wondering for a moment whether she meant, could I read? Well, yes, I said cautiously. Yes, of course I read. I can't bear to be on a train without a book, she announced. It's a form of self-defense in a way. I'm not very good at talking to strangers, that's the truth of it. Oh, don't look so worried. I shall try my best with you. But it seems to me that every time I'm in a railway carriage, there's some lonely old bachelor sitting next to me who wants to compliment me on my dress or my hair or my good taste in hats. And I find that type of thing rather frustrating and not a little patronising. You're not going to pay me any compliments, are you, Mr. Sadler? I hadn't planned on it, I said. I don't know much about ladies' dresses or their hair or their hats. She stared at me, and her lips parted, and she offered what might have been the distant relation of a smile. She reached for her bag and removed a cigarette case, plucked one out, and offered a second to me. I was going to accept, but changed my mind at the last moment. You don't smoke? She asked, appalled. I do, I said, but I won't just now, if you don't mind. I don't mind, she said, putting the case back in her bag and lighting up in a quick, fluid movement of thumb, wrist, and flint. Why should I mind? Are we lunching yet, Mr. Sadler? She asked, blowing smoke in my face and causing me to turn my head to avoid it. Or shall we just have tea for now? I think tea, she said, not waiting for an answer. Tea for two, Jane, she called to the waitress. Anything to eat? No, not just yet. You're not in a hurry, Mr. Sadler, are you? Or are you ravenous already? 
It seems to me that young men are always ravenous these days. All the ones I know, anyway. No, I'm fine, I replied. Then just tea for now. We may have something a little later on. She took another drag from her tab, then pressed it out, only half smoked in the ashtray. That's enough of that, she said. Do you know, I'm rather thinking of giving these things up. Really, I asked, any particular reason? Well, the truth is, I don't enjoy them as much as I used to. Also, I can't imagine it can be all that good for you, can it? Taking all that smoke into your lungs every day. It doesn't sound very sensible when you think about it. I can't imagine it does that much harm. I said, everyone smokes. You don't. I do, I replied. I just didn't feel like it right now. She nodded and narrowed her eyes as if she was sizing me up. We didn't speak for a while, and it gave me an opportunity to examine her more closely. She was older than Will and I, about 25, I imagined, but there was no wedding ring on her finger. She wore her hair in a tidy, efficient way, cut short below the chin line, without an ounce of vanity to the style. She was pretty, handsome, I should say, and wore only a light smear of lipstick that may in fact have been her natural colouring. I imagined there was many a young man who might lose his head over her, or have it bitten off. So, she said, after a moment, where did you stay last night, anyway? Mrs Cantwell's boarding house, I replied. Cantwell's, she asked. I don't know them, do I? One never really knows the boarding houses in one's own town, does one? No, I said. No, I suppose not. When I go to London, I stay at a very nice place on Russell Square. An Irish woman called Jackson runs it. She drinks, of course. Mother's ruined by the gallon. But she's polite, her rooms are clean, she stays out of my business, and that's good enough for me. Can't cook a breakfast to save her life, but that's a small price to pay. Do you know that part of London, Mr Sadler? Yes, I said. I work in Bloomsbury, although I live north of the river. No plans to move to the centre? Not at the moment, no. It's frightfully expensive, you see. And I work at a publishing house. No money in it? No money in it for me, I said. She smiled and looked down at the ashtray, and I thought she might be rather regretting putting her cigarette out, for she seemed anxious to have something to do with her hands. She looked over towards the counter, where there was no sign of the tea, or, for that matter, any sign of our waitress. I'm thirsty, she said. What's keeping her, anyway? It's usually very reliable in here. My goodness, all we asked for were two cups of tea. But you must be starving, Mr. Sadler, are you? Have you eaten? Young men are always ravenous, I find. I stared at her, unsure whether she would remember that she had already made that remark, but she appeared oblivious to it. I had some breakfast, I replied, after a moment. At your Mrs. Cantwell's? No, not there, somewhere else. Oh, really? she asked, leaning forward, terribly interested now. Where did you go? Was it somewhere nice? I don't remember, I said. I think there are a number of good places to eat in Norwich, she said. I suppose you think we're terribly provincial here and can't provide good food. You London chaps always think that, don't you? Not at all, Miss Bancroft, I replied. In fact, of course, what you should have done was ask me in advance. If you had let me know you were coming the night before, why, we might have invited you to dinner. I wouldn't have liked to put you to any trouble, I said. But it wouldn't have been any trouble, she replied, sounding almost offended. For heaven's sakes, there's just one more person at the table. How much trouble could that be? Didn't you want to come to dinner, Mr. Sadler? Was that it? Well, I didn't think about it, I said, becoming flustered now. By the time I reached Norwich, I was tired, that's all. I just went straight to my boarding house and went to sleep. Of course you were, she said. Train journeys can be so tiresome. I like to bring a book to read. Do you read, Mr. Cantwell? Oh, my stars, I've already asked you that, haven't I? She said, bursting into an extraordinary laugh. You told me that you like to read. Yes, I said, and it's, it's Sadler, not Cantwell. Yes, I know, she said, frowning. Why would you tell me that? You called me Mr. Cantwell. Did I? Yes, just a moment ago. She shook her head and dismissed the idea. I don't think I did, Mr. Sadler, she said, but it doesn't matter. What were you reading? On the train. Yes, of course, she said, a note of frustration seeping into her tone as she looked around and stared at the waitress behind the counter, who was placing two scones on two plates for the couple who had moved to the isolated seats and showing no signs whatsoever of bringing our teas. White Fang, I told her, by Jack London. Have you read it? 
No, she replied. Is he an American author? Yes, I said. You know of him then? I've never heard of him, she said. I just thought he sounded like one, that's all. Even with a name like London, I asked, smiling at her. Yes, even with that, Mr. Cantwell. Sadler, I replied. Stop it, can't you? She snapped, her face turning cold as she slammed her, hand, her hands flat on the table between us. Don't go on correcting me. I won't stand for it. I'm sorry, I said. I didn't mean to offend you. Well, you did. You did offend me, and I don't like it. Your name is Sadler, Tristan Sadler. You don't have to keep telling me over and over. I'm sorry, I repeated. And don't keep apologising, it's terribly annoying. I'm... I stopped myself in time. Yes, yes, she said. She drummed her fingers on the table and looked at the half-smoked cigarette again. And I knew there was a part of her that was weighing the etiquette of picking it up, rubbing away the charred end and relighting it. What do... What, what do you like to read, Miss Bancroft? I said, desperate to salvage the situation. Novels, I suppose. No, I don't care for novels, she said. None of the stories ever happened, did they? I can never quite see the point of reading about people who never existed, doing things they never did, in settings they never visited. So Jane Eyre marries her Mr. Rochester at the end. Well, Jane Eyre never existed, nor did Mr. Rochester, or the wild woman he kept in the cellar. It was an attic, I said, pedantically. Well, regardless, it's a lot of nonsense, isn't it? I think it's more of an escape than anything else. Well, I don't need an escape, Mr. Sadler, she said, stressing my name now. No, I prefer to read about things that really happened. I read non-fiction mostly, history books, politics, biographies, things like that. Politics, I asked, surprised. You're interested in politics. But of course I am, she said. You think I shouldn't be, on account of my sex? I don't know, Miss Bancroft, I said, exhausted now by her belligerence. I'm just, I'm just talking, that's all. Be interested in politics if you want to be. It doesn't matter to me. But of course it matters, Mr. Sadler, she said, quieter now, as if she realised that she might have gone too far. It matters because you and I wouldn't be here together if it wasn't for politics, would we? No, I said, shrugging my shoulders. No, I suppose we wouldn't. Well then, she said, pulling open her bag and reaching again for the cigarette case, which, when she retrieved it, slipped out of her hands and fell to the floor with a tremendous crash, scattering cigarettes around our feet. Oh, bloody hell, she cried, startling me. Look at what I've done now. In a moment, our waitress was beside us, reaching down to help gather them, but it was the wrong move on her part, for Miss Bancroft had had quite enough for one day and stared at her so furiously that I thought she might attack. Never mind them, she shouted. I can pick them up. Can we have our tea, please? Is it too much to ask for two cups of tea? And the pictures they are making are pictures of northern stars at different seasons. And the man keeping my blood straight as it splits the soil is named Lucian, and he will plant wheat, and I cannot concentrate on this apple. And the only thing common to all of this is that I feel sorrow so deep that it must be love. And they are upset because while they are carving and plowing, they are troubled by visions of trying to pick apples from barrels. I looked away and ran back upstairs, skipping the ones that creaked so that I would not embarrass my father, who had not quite yet turned back from clay into light. Thank you. To begin with a question for both of you, please. Barry Cook, the artist, whenever he comes across one of his paintings that he might not have seen for several years, will stand and look and look and look because he wants to remember the very first time the brush touched the canvas. He likes to know where that painting began. Where, when you think of these two books, when did it begin? Uh, well, for me, um, this novel started about three years ago, um, watching a news report on the BBC of a town in England where a monument was being erected to soldiers who had died in the First World War. 
and there was an interview with descendants of soldiers who had either been shot as conscientious objectors or who had lost their minds, been shell-shocked in the trenches and been shot because of that. And their names were not being included on the monument. And the descendants, uh, there was, a, there was a, a great deal of pain and um, upset about this. And this is happening in quite a few towns, I think, around England. And, and that's where it started. It was the, the notion of the conscientious objector and the person who was left behind. Because even though the book is narrated by the boy who was in the trenches, uh, a, a lot of it is to do with the sister at home, the parents at home, people who were uh, pillars of a community and to whom, they're, uh, to whom people do not speak anymore because they feel that they have let down the village. And you can sense, of course, even her nervous tension in that conversation that you read from. I well, she's, a, she's very angry. I mean, she's a, she's a, she's a furious person because she, um, she loves her brother, or she loved her brother, and her brother has been shot by her own countrymen. She's working as somebody who, who's helping servicemen who have come home from the war, despite the fact that she feels such rage towards them. And it's this kind of um, uh, ambiguity uh, that she struggles with through, through the story, and which she's aware of, which she um, articulates uh, in the book, that she's helping people, even though she wants to kill them half the time. And why Norwich? Norwich, because I, I went to university in Norwich. I, I, I spent a year there as a creative writing student, and I went back there to teach about five years ago. And I love Norwich, and um, it's a small English town. I know it very well. Um, and I knew they were just going to be wandering around these streets all day, so I better pick somewhere that uh, I've wandered around the streets of. And Paul, Tinkers? Um, tink tinkers, m most of the um, dramatic premises of Tinkers are based on stories that my maternal grandfather told me about his own life growing up in the state of um, nor northern Maine, state of Maine up, up, up north. And um, I remember very vividly the first passage that I wrote from Tinkers. Um, so a as in the book, his father was a, um, a peddler, a door-to-door -door salesman. He's what they call fuller brush salesman. And he, um, he had epilepsy. And he found out about his wife's plans to have him institutionalized. Um, and um, so he abandoned the family, when my, leaving my grandfather, who was 12 years old, with his, with his uh, sis younger sisters and brother and his mother. Um, and uh, so the very first scene, there's a scene in the book that um, it's, it's just a moment where um, Howard um, is on this little cart where he keeps all of his, all of his wares that he sells. And um, he suddenly becomes aware of the fact that he has, um, he has driven past the turnoff to his house. And he stops the cart. And there's just a moment where he realizes that, um, that it, it dawns on him that he has, he's, he has abandoned his family. And I think, you know, similar to what John was saying, it's sort of, I, 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 sort of the, the, the real dramatic kind of hardness that I was uh, attracted to was that the idea that the impossible has become fact. You know, to, to, to the protagonists and tinkers, it's just, you know, it's, it's un, you know, to, to me it was, it was just um, an incredibly difficult and so therefore sort of alluring thing to write about, to think about if the, the best choice that you could possibly make would be to leave your spouse and your children. And that idea of having to make um, the least worst choice or the, you know, the, being confronted with something that you think is impossible, but it is nevertheless less fact, so you have to act in the face of it. And on top of these stories you inherited, did you go off and then do research or trace your family back? No, I did none. No, and, I, and it was actually, um, it was actually um, um, something my grandfather would not elaborate on these, any of these stories out of what I've come to think of as a kind of generational tact. He and my grandmother, who was also from northern Maine, both had very, very difficult, chaotic, impoverished lives in northern Maine. And um, they, um, they ended up going down to Massachusetts, and she was a clerk in the post office, and he was a, a, he taught, he was a machinist. He taught mechanical drawing. And um, they both were adamant that um, what happened in the woods stayed in the woods, and we made a good life, and we don't talk about the bad things. But as a, you know, the, to me, that had the effect of just making the stories irresistible. Um, but in a way, it was good that there was too little rather than too much. I was able to really just imagine um, you know, full, fully elaborated um, fictional versions of these people's lives. Ian McEwan says that there's always one other character in a novel, and that character is time. Now, you move through generations, and 
It's almost timeless at times. And then you have an Alfa Romeo arriving in your novel and you get a jolt and you're back in a very modern world. And in your novel, John, I mean, time, it moves from 1916 to 1979 in that final chapter, we've got an update. And you move from past tense to present tense. How did you organize your novel in terms of the temporal perspective? Was that a difficulty or was it a deliberate thing, say the shift from past to present? Well, I knew that um, there was going to be these six chapters, three in, in the years of the war itself and three in the year immediately following it. And uh, I, I decided to make the, the uh, 1919 section after the war past tense and the war section present tense. I thought it would um, add a sort of an immediacy to it. Particularly, there's, um, there's 20 scenes in two long chapters which take place in France, in the trenches. And they're all very, very short, very quick um, scenes uh, of just moments that are happening, um, almost unrelated to each other. There's no linear progression in the narrative. And um, I wanted it to feel that the narrator was there, was feeling the, um, uh, the, the, the horror, the terror of everything around him, and the confusion more than anything else, I suppose. Uh, so, you know, I, I tried to, I thought if I do it like this, maybe this will work. And then I wanted to finish with a scene 60 years later, because there's a, there's a large reveal um, at the end of the penultimate chapter, uh, which the whole book has been leading towards. And it's, it ends there. And then I just wanted to follow it, you know, when these two people were old, 60 years later, 1979, where are they now? They run into each other again. How has the past affected their lives? You know, when they're young, when Tristan's 21 and Marion's 25, they're both still looking forward to their lives, despite the fact that they've both been through such a traumatic experience. But they're still looking forward. How much, how much do they actually gain from that? You know, when they're old, did their lives work out? So... That's just the way I thought it would be interesting to explore it. And that you always have that ending. I mean, John Fowles mm. famously said he will never begin a novel until he knows the closing sentence. Did you yeah. know that you would shift to 1979 at the outset? Yeah, I knew that. John Irving says that as well, actually. He always, he always writes his, his last sentence first. Um, yeah, I knew how it would end. Uh, I, I, usually know, I usually only know with a book what it's about and how it's going to end. Uh, and so I knew that, mm. and well, the rest of it you just make up as you go along. And the George Washington Crosby story begins and he's got eight days to live and then is punctuated by the countdown. But then, of course, you weave into that wonderful meditation on his being there in the hospital bed in, in his sitting room, the backstory, and it goes back and back into worlds that he couldn't even have known. How did you organize it so well? I, well, I, I, I relied on that staging device of the, the sort of the countdown, eight days, seven days, six days, five days. And I always knew that the, um, the end of the book would be coincidental with the moment of the protagonist's death. Spo spoiler alert. But, there's, there's, but that's also because there's a bit fundamentally no plot in the book. <laughs> um, and, and, and actually, that is what delineates time. That's what breaks it up, because most of the time is interior. You know, I think of plot as very mechanistic and linear, and I think of interior time as just unhitched from, you know, it can, it can expand and contract and dilate and do all sorts of things. Um, and that's just how I write. I just write very associatively, and it's very slapdash. I have no master plan. It's very fortuitous, and I'm sort of always taping and stapling and gluing things together and rearranging them and just seeing how it, how, how it comes together until, until I feel like something starts to starts to resonate. So in a way, I use that staging so that I could, I could give myself the sort of just the intuitive freedom to just sort of move around and then the characters lines up. And those extracts from the book, the horologist or whatever, is that you or is it some book? No, so within the, within the book, there are excerpts from another book called The Reasonable Horologist, which is an 18th century manual on clock repair, and I completely made it up. And it was just fun because it was just, it's written in a very, very kind of florid, tongue-in-cheek kind of, welcome, dear fellow, to reason, you know, that kind of, um, and, and it, it just, I mean, the, my initial motive for working, for writing that was just actually, actually almost just counterpoint, because so much of the rest of the book is quite funereal and somber, and I felt like I needed something to sort of, um, to sort of set that, that the tragedy kind of in, in, in relief. But then it also became an interesting um, way to, to, to um, another way to model time, another way to model being in time. 
and the movement of the house or the pulling of the tooth, were they just imagined or based on, again, things that were part of your family's law? In the, those two cases, they're imagined. Most of those episodes are imagined, um, but they do come out of the sort of the, 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 the general um, um, uh, historical kind of milieu. You know, in, in, in northern Maine, it was the case that you know, if you had a house, it, 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 it was worth everything to you, and um, you didn't move to another house or build another house. You, Picked it up off its foundation and had it dragged across to the new to the new lot. They used to drag it actually in the in, in Maine, the, the place that the novel is loosely based on. It was they were on a very large lake and they used to drag the houses across the ice in the winter. That's how they'd move their houses around. You've both been through the creative writing school, and they've stood you in very good stead. Um, and you teach creative writing. It can be taught. Well, it can't be taught, but it's. Um, I, I think you know people. People usually criticise these courses because they say you can't teach writing. But what I found in my experience uh, when I went to UEA in Norwich um, was a, a forum for twelve people who all wanted to write, who all wanted to be novelists, um, to to spend time together for a year writing, giving each other work to read, analysing each other's work, um, learning from that. I mean, I, I went into that. I was very young when I, I was too young. When I did the course, I was, I was only 23. And I went in thinking I was you know, brilliant. And I came out thinking I was hopeless. You know, I mean, what the course did for me was completely break me down and knock all the, uh, all the sort of cockiness out of me, really. And actually, after the course finished, I don't think I wrote anything for about 18 months. Because what I had learned was that um, I didn't have a voice of my own, that everything I was writing I was writing my J.D. Salinger story. I was writing my Philip Roth story. You know, um, and I had to find, who am I? What am I writing about? What, what do I want to write about? It's not enough to just say, I want to be a writer. Um, you've got to have something that you want to write about. And it took me some time to, to figure that out. But um, I think if I hadn't done the course, um, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have reached that point, and I probably wouldn't have you know, published novels. So I think they're very useful. And if you look back over your novels, John, they're very varied. I mean, Crip and the Victorian, mm. uh, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, um, this novel. I mean, you move from different eras very easily. You kind of recreate different worlds. Yeah. What then is your distinctive kind of voice, would you say? Well, I think there's a lot of connections to be made between those books. As I look at them now, you know, building up, I think um, there's very, very, very common themes. Um, loyalty and friendship is um, a theme which runs through all of the books, uh, I think. Um, there's, usually, um, there's usually some sort of betrayal. Uh, there's usually a father figure, you know, in the novel about the bounty, it's a cabin boy uh, looking up to the captain in House of Special Purpose. It's a young soldier looking up to the czar. Um, th that kind of relationship. I mean, in this, only after I wrote this, the first, um, first interview I did for this book, the journalist said to me uh, something I had not thought of. She said, uh, you know, so this is a novel about two boys who meet during a war, become friends with disastrous consequences. You know, haven't, haven't, haven't we read that before? <laughs> haven't you written that? And, um, and I hadn't really thought about that, you know? And uh, I think a lot of these things are, are subconscious. There's a, there's a moment in this book where um, Tristan denies his friendship with Will at a very crucial moment. And uh, when I started reading that to audiences, I. I I recalled a similar scene in, in uh, Boy in the Striped Pajamas, where Bruno um, denies his friendship with Shmuel in the kitchen. And um, so, you know, you, you start to see these things building, but I think they're often subconscious. They're only after the fact. You look back at the book and you think, actually, I never thought about that when I was writing it, but there it is. And then the criteria becomes to, to just, if you keep writing the scene of d the denial of friendship, you just better write it well every time you do it. You know, like yeah. precipitate something new out of it, you, you know. The idea that write, every writer has his or her own kind of obsessions and just if you return to them, return to them. You yeah, know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, most writers do. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. Philip Roth got criticized um, last week uh, when he won the International Booker for, um, for writing about the same thing all the time. And he does write about the same thing all the time, but he writes about it and he explores it in different ways. And he's getting closer and closer to the, to the heart of it all the time yeah, and what why, it is he's trying to say. That's why readers you know, who love Philip Roth yeah. over and over again, because he is going to, you know, in some ways, write yeah. I mean, a lot of novel writing is repetition in a way, but it's, um, it's also clarification. It's, 
it's distillation. Yeah. Or, yeah. Tell us about the mega famous Iowa Writers Workshop. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know. I had this, uh, the, um, I had this strange experience in a previ previous life. I was a drummer in a rock band. So I, when, I, when I was 21, I, 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 I ended up, I just spent all of my 20s actually in a van, in the back of a van touring North America and Europe. And, um, and then when I was 30, um, the band exploded, went down in flames as rock bands tend to. And really what it was is I just thought, oh my God, does this mean I have to get a job? And I thought, no, grad school, that's what I can do. And, and so were I... Were you reading in the back of the van? I was. I was well, not in the back of the van. I was other things in the back of the van. But I was... Um, <laughs> but I'd always been an avid reader, yes. And, it's, and I think a lot of writers, you, 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 you hit a sort of critical mass with your reading and you finally think, I'd like to answer back. I want to get in on that conversation, you know, across generations and cultures, and, all. and so I, um, I uh, the first workshop uh, writing class I took was just a two-week thing during the summer. But by the luck of the draw, my first teacher, writing teacher, was um, the novelist Marilyn Robinson, and it was the sort of I was thinking when you were talking earlier about you know being in a writing program. My experience was that um, I really paid attention to my teachers, and you know, and it. In my case, the circumstances with Marilyn Robinson was such that I just knew within 10 minutes of her walking into a room, like I, she, um, I, she was going to model for me the life of the writer, the life of the mind of the writer, you know, that, that kind of aesthetic and intellectual sophistication and discipline that I kind of intuitively knew that you kind of needed to be a writer, but had no idea how to go about it. And I couldn't write a certain story to save my life. And so, but um, but um, the... Um, so I mean, that, that was my experience. But I agree, you can, nobody can give you your vision. It's, um, and in, in the United States, this is debated. And I was just sort of on the, in Paris and in Italy, people ask me to sort of, you know, they, they think it's kind of crazy to go to school for writing. But one of the things I, that my retort is, always, but nobody ever asked that question about going to school for dancing or acting or painting. It's taken for granted that you go to school for those things. So what makes writing? I think there's some kind of, residual kind of romantic idea about writing, at least in the United States, that it's just, you know, you steal a motorcycle and get a bottle of whiskey and just drive off the cliff, and book learning will only ruin whatever's kind of sincere in your, which is just, just patently not, not true. And is the Marilyn Robinson not so much of housekeeping, but Gilead and home, isn't it, that would be an influence on you? I feel more influenced by housekeeping. Personally, but why, I mean, why that? Because it's very different in many ways from the other. Two. It is in some ways, but it's the, just the just the way that she works with senses and, and ex, ex, just the pure immersion into sense that housekeeping has, and that kind of just the way that everything just kind of gets unglued from habitual thinking and habitual perception, and just is kind of luminescent and numinous and all those sorts of things. Those really, um, that was the that was the the book that really. Um, that inspired me most directly, and, and at, at the earliest, mm -hmm. at the earliest stages. Some writers say they won't read when they're writing because it's just going to pollute their well, own it's world. Madness to me. I read as much as I possibly can, and it all goes into the pot. You know, I mean, I'm, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to write about um, whatever's, whatever I'm reading and whatever I'm seeing. I mean, I just, that's, you know, I, I don't separate any. Con I, I, I try not. I, I try. I try to reconcile any discrepancies between myself as a writer and myself as a person experiencing my consciousness or my humanity. So I kind of just dump it all in. But that also makes for kind of much more kind of like decentralized kind of experiential novels rather than kind of more pl plot driven. Do you plot out reading from Definitely not. No, to me it's as a as a writer it's all part of it's all part of it. You know, I don't understand writers who 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 aren't reading. I'm I'm constantly reading, constantly keeping up with the new books and the new writers. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm always confused by, you know, at the end of the year, those uh, roundups in the papers were, you know, best books of the year or whatever. And you, re you read a novelist who says, well, I, I've, I've only read one novel this year. And you think, how can you be interested in fiction and not be interested in, in this book and this book and this book? Well, but it's not even just about supporting it. It's about um, being engaged with it. You know, being able to have a conversation about it. You know, when you're talking, um, when you're talking about your own work, being able to relate it to your peers. What 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 is being published right now? What writers of your own age are doing? Um, I, I I find it very difficult to understand writers who don't read. When I went back to UEA five years ago, teaching, I was teaching um, 
on the, uh, on the MA, and the first day, 15 students, and I asked each one of them, uh, what are you reading right now? And three out of 15 were reading a book, and the other 12 had some reason why they weren't reading or hadn't read in ages or something. And then I asked them, how many of you 10 years from now would like to be a full-time novelist as a career? And they all put their hands up. And I just thought, well, I mean, am I the only one seeing this? You know, this is crazy. You know, you three, maybe. You 12? I think it's also true that's something I, 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 I tell my students all the time is that I am absolutely convinced that your writing can only be as good as the best stuff you've read. Yeah. Uh, Paul, dare I say the words, the great American novel? I mean, your book is so intrinsically American. Even Betsy Ross gets a walk on part in oh, it. She does, doesn't she? Tiny Good little old Betsy. Moment. Yeah. And I mean, there's the Indian, and there's the landscape, and there's the whole sense of a people emerging and through the generations. Um, is there such a thing as the great American novel? I don't, I don't know. You know. I think that's an interesting kind of talking point. And for me, the great American novel is Moby Dick. Um, and uh, you know, I'm happy to sort of aspire to try to write that kind of prose that Melville does, and that kind of inspire, you know, the sort of same kind of stuff poetry, like the like that Walt Whitman wrote, the kind of tr transcendentalist sort of thing. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think America is such a such a gigantic kind of um, uh, um, varied place that I think it's 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 hard to you, it's it's dangerous to do that. You know, um, I mean, in the same way that I even feel, you know, so like any kind of normative kind of labels for things, I just always um, I get a little bit worried about. I, but I'm sort of always asked about like the, you know, the, 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 you know, what do I mean to say about America? Or, you know, the, the quintessence of America, and it's that's it, I just it's a strange phenomenon for me because I really was just writing about very very particular people in very particular places, and I think those larger things sort of inevitably. Um, and, and you know, end up sort of resonating within with, within a book, um, but I, I almost, I more and more almost think that that, that those things tend to themselves almost. That, you know, I, I feel more like um, precision and detail are my 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 job. Precision of description is is my job in the larger. And what about the big themes, religion, politics? Well, I mean, those are, I just, I like those because they're inexhaustible. You can just go in and you can just fetch things out, you know, you know, contradictory things as much as you want, and you can model them and you'll never exhaust them. And the nice thing about being a novelist is I don't have to, I have to come up with any answers. And I am always just very self-conscious about presuming to tell anybody what to think about their own being or, you know, you know so I, I'm, you know, I'm happy with modeling sometimes even contradictory impulses, often contradictory impulses, and just putting them next to each other and letting the, you know, sort of the third thing synthesize up off of them. You're more overtly political. I mean, in the suffrage movement, say, Marion Bancroft mm -hmm. discussing that, a religion, um, partially as a vicar and the whole rejection of religion by um, certain characters in the novel. Um, when you were making this book, John, I mean, were you aware of Tristan as a character whom we might not like very much? I mean, he's burdened. He's, mm. we might, there's a danger we might just pity him rather yeah. than respond to him in a different way. I don't think I was thinking about what an audience or what a reader would think of him. I think but with a first-person narrative, the concern is always making the character seem real and honest and um, not trying to guide the reader towards a particular emotion. Uh, I mean, I like him. I care about him because I think he's, he's hurt and he's damaged. You deal him and very many cruel blows. I, I, mean, I do, but it's the kind it's, of guy I... It's, it's devastating. Um, I mean, you don't give him any break. No, I don't, but, but I... Do I not? Cold father. Oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> no, I suppose I don't. But, because but at, 80, you know, at 81, he is a man who's lived a lonely life. Yeah. Um, even though he's had great success as an author, there is that lack of personal happiness. And I mean, it's devastating when you read how Will responds to him at crucial moments. Yeah. Um, I suppose you're right. There isn't really any moment of happiness for him, but he's... Um, it's, bec it's because when I was writing him, what I, what I was concerned about was he enters this army, this war, at 17, at such a young age, and he's only there for 18 months. 
And that has to weigh on him for the rest of his life, that he's not just going to be able to walk away from it. And the things that he feels guilty about, and if you read, you know, I can't really explain them because it gives away the novel, but the things that he feels guilty about are so bad in his mind, so terrible, that he cannot envision happiness. He can't envision sharing his life with somebody. He can't imagine what it is to be happy, despite the fact that he, yes, he becomes a, a successful novelist, uh, which is what he wanted to be. He realizes that, that doesn't really mean an awful lot. That's just, that's just what you do with your day. You know, that uh, life is built from much more than just you know, success. It's, it's about more than that. Um, but, but I like him. You know, I care. I want, him, I want him to be, I want the reader, if I had to guide the reader to, towards some emotion, it would be towards caring about him, you know, wanting to, wanting things to work out for him, but realizing that they just can't. You know, it's, that's life. Yeah, people's hearts and spirits are broken in real life. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and that, and, and that's, the reader recognizes that. You know, that's, that's the deep, almost the deepest yeah. thing that you can do is just have the reader. But he's not a bad, it doesn't make him a bad, an, an evil right. character. It doesn't make him a, somebody to feel um, any antipathy towards, I think. Just um, compassion, hopefully. And there's always a distinction between empathy and sympathy. Yeah. Feeling empathy is the deeper, yeah, yeah. It's the deeper experience rather than sympathy mm -hmm. for a character, I think. There are some harsh, cold truths in your novel, Paul. For example, Kathleen is dismayed every morning when she first sees her children peaceful sleeping in their beds when she goes to wake them, that as often as not the feeling she has is one of resentment, of loss. Where does that coldness come from? In, in her case, I mean, I just, I, I feel, you know, like my, not so much in my grandmother's case, but I feel like a lot of women um, <laughs> here, there, and everywhere, and now and then. But, but you know, in particularly when I think of that time and place, they led very hapless lives. You know, they had very few um, kind of social and material resources, and they often found themselves sort of pregnant and married before they even knew what hit them. And that idea of her, you know, I mean, her dismay comes from the deep, profound sense that she should feel otherwise. And so she feels, she experiences that coldness as a profound human failing. You know, she looks at her children and thinks, uh, you know, they just look like a bunch of rocks or stones to me, whatever it is in the book. And just, and, and she feels a dismay, you know, she, she understands that something has gone terribly wrong. Um, so there is a bitterness, there is a resentment, but there's also, the, you know, she is aware that her heart has hardened, you know, and so she does the best she can to try to, um, uh, you know, that, that's almost a given, she, one day she realizes that is almost a given factor of her humanity and she still makes gestures against that hardened heart that I think she finds in herself. Um, which I won't talk about because it's like the one little thing that happens in the plot. But um, yeah, I think that that's, yeah. and I think that anybody who's had children, you know, it's just, I mean, you know, the, the kind of much more mundane version of it is just, you know, you know, the rhetoric of, oh, it's beautiful children. And sometimes you look at them and you think, boy, you're a pain in the neck. You know, and, and just that, that awful thing, like I shouldn't feel that way, but I sometimes do. It's that. But the men, I mean, the, George is a little boy burying the mouse. I mean, that's a very beautiful, tender sequence. And masculinity seems to come out of your novel stronger and more attractive than the role assigned to women. Yeah, it's the strangest thing. I mean, one of the things that I'm, the, the, you know, the kind of, and I, and I think this is almost one of the things that just motivates writers to keep going and keep going, but um, I'm, it, for certain reasons, I'm, <coughs> the character to whom I'm most loyal in the book is Kathleen, precisely because I feel like I couldn't quite do her justice. She's, a, she's an obscure, difficult person. Um, and um, and the, when the novel was originally going to be, you know, when I first started working on it with my editor, there was actually 60 or 70 pages that were all about ca the character Kathleen's life before she had children, and, because I just wanted to know more about her life. Just so happened, though, with this book, that every time she took center stage, the rest of it just started wobbling off axis, and it, it just turned out that the kind of the the economy and the balance of the whole book was just this kind of telescoping generations of fathers and sons. So it's not certainly nothing deliberate. In in your novel, John, the definition of or the you know it, there's masculinity and it's being defined and it's complex and there's a suppression of desire. Did you at any point in the novel decide that you would be more or less explicit 
in the in the terms of the central relationship. I mean, I remember mm. in the Forgotten Wall, San Enright speaks. Uh, her narrator says, "Well, what we did then is nobody's business but our own," and she just doesn't go anywhere into the intimacies of a relationship. Um, did you? How, what was your take on that? Um, well. I think, you know, when I was starting it, I knew that there was going to be this um, central um, love affair. And I don't know how, what you feel about this, but it, as a novelist, I mean, you, you, you just don't really look forward to the idea of writing about sex, necessarily, at least the... Here, here. The, the <laughs> dirty... Circumstantially, I can't... The I'm dirty, nitty-gritty of it, you know. You don't want to be... Um, unlike Philip Roth, who just won, you know, so we won't win... Well, unlike Philip Roth, you know, I mean, one of the first yeah. people I give the book to to read is my mother, so, you know, I don't want to... I'm kind of traumatized, poor woman. But, um, you know, I, I think because, I mean, the relationship, it, the, the central relationship is between two men in the book, uh, one of whom is, um, is, is definitely, definitely gay, and the other one is much more fluid on, on where he is on the line from zero to ten of sexuality. And um, I just thought there was, no need to, there was no need to be explicit. I thought, you know, you can... You can turn the camera away gracefully at the right moment and leave it to the imagination. Well, I don't mean leave it to the, you know, it depends how vivid your imagination is, I suppose. But you can, it's not about sex, it's about love. You know, Tristan is falling deeper and deeper in love with Will, even though he doesn't understand this, really. It's 1917, he's not, um, it, it's not like now, it's not, it's not a, I don't think their relationships would be as explicit as, uh, as a similar relationship would be today. So it's, it's different. He's not, a, he's, not, he's not looking to Will for sex. He's looking to him for love. You know, he's looking to him to, to be with him all the time to the exclusion of everybody else. So it's, it's, it, seemed to me, it seemed to me inappropriate to, um, you know, to, to just turn it into a sexual thing because I don't think that's what this relationship is. And it's, I mean, it could over-determine things, too, yeah. you know, for certain readers. It could. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, but I thought about it long and hard, you know, at, at the start, about, about how, it should, how it should play out on the page. But that was the decision I came to. I thought, you know, just make it stop at those moments. The reader knows what is, is happening. Then you move on. You mentioned Will being fluid. It's more fearful, though, as well, isn't it? I mean, a victim of circumstance. You see, I don't think he is fearful because, uh, you know, there's, but it's, he it's so angry. And he but he becomes so angry. Frightened. He becomes angry because he does not believe. I, I don't think there's anybody in the book who is lying. You know, when it comes to the, the climactic moments of the novel, where Tristan and Will are really fighting about this relationship about what it is, and Tristan thinks it's one thing and Will thinks it's the other, and it's really left to the reader to decide who Will is. You know, I don't see Will as being somebody who is denying his sexuality. I think he's somebody who just has not thought about it in the way that Tristan has. Again, it's 1917. He certainly has desires in one direction, but he doesn't see that as being a definition of what his life is. He can't understand why Tristan is making really, you know, such a song and dance about everything. You know, I, I don't see him, though, as being somebody who is lying about things or who is... And pretending to be something he's not, he just isn't. He just isn't there, you know. And it's I, I. I do leave it to the reader to decide exactly who and what Will is and what he might have become. You know, I, I think it's. I think sexuality is not as black and white as that. I don't think it's you're this or you're that. You know, it's there's all sorts of other things in the middle, and there are people that you meet along the way who, you know, it doesn't matter if you're you're gay, straight, or whatever. There are people you meet of the opposite gender than you think you're attracted to who still affect you in some way and leave you questioning who you are. And um, I don't think a lot of people recognize or acknowledge that, but I think it's true. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the clock, and I think we now invite questions from the floor. This event was billed as Legacy Craft Devotion, so perhaps the audience might like to ask about Legacy Craft Devotion. <laughs> or any other questions? And there's a roving microphone, please, and the lights are coming up. So any questions from the floor? I have a question. Yeah? Um, I'm very interested in those books that I saw this way. It just occurred to me that what have the classical writers got? What could they access? This is something that can build. Well, I, 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 you know, I, 
to me, that, that's, a, that's a strange function of time. And I actually, you know, when um, John was talking about, you know, reading all the contemporary writers, I have a tough time. I, I can't stop reading classic writers, partly because, you know, they're class, I mean, they're still, they're the books we're still reading 100 years later because they've lasted. And surely some of the books that we're reading now will be there, but I won't be there in 100 years. So I do the ones that have already sort of been vetted by time. I don't think that the classical writers have access to anything different that, than what we, than that to which we have access. You know, and I think that's actually, a, a, at least in the, a lot of the creative writing classes I take, it's actually something that I have to like deliberately um, kind of break down, you know, this, this, this like, you know, oh, nobody could ever do what Melville did again. Nobody could ever do what Shakespeare or Milton did again or any, of course you can. There's no physiological difference. There's no, you know, you just have to be kind of unabashed about wanting to make great art. And um, sometimes there's this idea of pulling punches. So if people, if, if something kind of blows up in your face, nobody will be able to accuse you afterwards of having actually been that ambitious. Um, so it's, it's, well, I mean, one thing about classical writers and classic novelists is that um, you know, they were just the best of their generation. There was as many, you know, just completely forgotten. You know, with, yeah. for every Dickens and Jules Verne and uh, you know Charlotte Bronte, there's a hundred other people who publish novels the same month yeah. and are all forgotten. So in the same way, I mean, it, it's not that 19th century. I mean, I love like 18th, 19th century novelists. Um, Charles Dickens is you know, my hero, the person who made me want to write. But um, it's not that they're just better than 20th century novelists or 21st century novelists. They're just the best of their generation. And the best of our generation should last as well. The question is, did Paul or did John learn more from their reading or from their um, courses in creative writing? Oh, from my reading. No question. I mean, 10,000 times more uh, from reading. Yeah, and what I learned from my, you know, from my MFA was, you know, pay attention to what you're reading. I mean, that's what it, you just listen to your, I mean, it's funny, I don't know about you, but you know, my, in my experience, it's it, it, you know, the two years I was at Iowa, it was, you know, the same sort of handful of principles that you can understand intellectually the first time they're told to you. But you have to keep having them repeated to you in the context of an evolving engagement with the art because it's just the rest of your life is just, or the rest of your life as an artist is just a deepening of understanding of what the implications of those first fundamental principles um, that were given to you are. And so there's, you know, that's the, so, and so, you know, reading, you know, what, what does it actually mean to pay attention to reading? All those things, they just keep evolving and they, it's never like you just have it down, you know. But I think it also, there's something about training your brain in a certain way. I mean, if you're, if you're a writer and if you're constantly reading and writing and engaged in that, your mind is more open to it. It's, it's, it's a, like a muscle, I suppose. You know, it's, it is. It'll atrophy. That's exactly the Yeah. And, and so the, if you're writing all the time, but reading lots of books, I, I just think you're more open to creativity. And that when you sit down to write the next scene or the next chapter, you're so engaged with fiction and with character and plot and dialogue and imagery and theme and structure, all the things that make a novel, that, you know, that you're on top form anyway. You know, you're, 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 you're right in the center of things, and you know what to do. You know how to write. Yeah, and so much of that has to do also with the fact that, you know, to, in my experience, anyway, you know, when you climb down into your book and your, or your scene, what you're doing, it's, it's disciplining the um, ability to pay close attention, mm -hmm. and that, that, and just that the habit of paying the closest possible attention, and not only being able to pay pay close attention, but to sustain it, is um, something that I get from reading. Like I, that's yeah. what I feel like the muscle, the, the you know, what the, the muscles that reading builds up are those of sustenance of the closest possible attention. Is there anything that you're aware of in your own writing? Now, for example, Sebastian Barry is very fond of simile, hardly an adjective in Hemingway. Is there something that you recognize in your own writing that's you know, distinctively yours? Well, I know there's something that I keep doing that I have to stop doing. And that's, I'm, I'm constantly having characters hesitating for a moment and looking away. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> have somebody wipe a crumb from their Yeah, No, it happens about a hundred times in every book. Yeah. Somebody hesitates for a moment and looks away. <laughs> and um, I, I'm 
I don't know if that's the answer to your question, but that's something I'm always trying to chop out. I lapse into um, uh, oration, like sermons. You know, and that's why that's why I, I like you know Melville so much. And I love that. That's a, Jeez, I don't know, because I used to saying my principle is not to tell people what to think, and then I sort of grab the lectern and. You know. Have you read the novel about Melville, the Jay Perini book? No, I haven't read it. Yeah, the passages no, of Herman yeah, Melville. It's fascinating. It's it's the history of of Mel, a, a, a fictional biography as such of Melville, and of course, you know, Melville when he died, his his life had been a failure. Panels Nobody had read anything he wrote, yeah, yeah. and he only became Melville after his death, yeah. um, at the start of the 20th century, really. Fascinating novel, anyway. Um, we'll take two more questions, please. What part of the writing process do you find most challenging, and how do you get through it? I think in the first draft of a novel, around two-thirds of the way through, um, you're too far away from the start, you're too far away from the end. Uh, you're right in the heart of a first draft, and I find that point is the point where the challenge of sitting down every day and keeping writing is where you have to be at your strongest and do it. Um, I think once you have a first draft of a novel, then you know, it's, it's great, because then you can just work at it, you can fix it, you can add things, chop things, take things out. But I do find about two thirds of the way through the first draft, I always just feel an exhaustion uh, upon me. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, for, you know, maybe four fifths of the way through the first draft, but it's only my second book, and um, and that's what I just I, 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 I that's what's so difficult. I just mm -hmm. can't quite bring it back into port, you know, that sort of thing. But I mean, I find everything more and more difficult about writing. I don't know, you know, the, but you know, I, I just feel like the 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 more I write, the more difficult it gets in some ways. And partly that's just because I just want to write a better book than the last book that I wrote, and the last book was pretty hard, <laughs> you know. And so it's just that. Um, but as long as you don't lose courage or lose spirit, you know, I, I think this, you know, it's just part of the discipline. Um, okay, two more questions briefly, because I'm, I'm looking at the clock. Sorry, yes, and then back there. I'd like to ask both of you whether you ever consider that you're um, practitioners of a dying art, that the that stories about people, their dramas against opinion, um, sort of like you can prove online, Well, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, um, I mean, you see, there's a lot of talk now, of course, all about the, the Kindles and the electronic books and things. And the, for, for all the sales that go through of those, they haven't taken off, and they've been around for quite a few years now, mm. but they haven't taken off in anything like um, what they should have taken off if they were going to last. I, I don't think five years from now people are going to be um, using those things. Um, television, no, nah, that's not going to last either. That's <laughs> I, I th I th the printed word has lasted for, you know, since whatever it is, the 14th century. It, it just seemed a bit coincidental, it seemed a bit bizarre if it just ended in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it'll, there's nothing you can do about it. So. One final question, please. Beauty. I thought that the thing about Tinker's um, was its, its sort of creed of compassion for all things. Because it, the, the compassion for all the characters, including Kathleen, and every every creeping thing, a bit like the it's grandfather, the you know. Mm. Um, and I, and so, I'm, on the theme of emotion, is is it essential to feel compassion for all of these things in order to be able to write a novel that's going to really resonate and last? Um, and so that's the question. And the other thing is that I can't wait for the sequel. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's my, you know, to me, you know, writing is a, it's a humanist endeavor. You know, I write because I'm interested in people and their hearts, you know, that sort of thing. And I mean, to me, there's, you know, the, the, the fiat is to be compassionate. Um, and, but, but as with most things, it's always coupled with its opposite, which is you, you, it, it's so important to emphasize compassion for everybody because, compa you know, compassion fails, you know. I just want to take you back again to your description of the women in the book. And I found, found it very difficult that I know that those women would have suffered very badly, but the lack of emotion, as you said, towards their children, but the very fact that your descriptions, if I could just find them, could you hold that for me? Uh, wait, no, her, <laughs> sorry. 
her, her pose of forbearance, her face of oppression, it <laughs> really brought home to me what those women went through. And the very fact that I think it was Howard's mother who, you know, the minister and the funeral horses drive up outside and he's never mentioned again. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had to be a tough woman to know what she had to do at the time. And the same with George's mother. But I just, the also, uh, there's plenty, the one thing that did great on me very much was because we were, I think we were straddling the kind of 19th century into early 1900s and all the rest of it. It's later and than that. Do you know what really straddled, really got to me though? That George's little sister and George, when he was talking to his mother, instead of calling her ma or ma'am or whatever, was calling her mummy, mummy, mummy. Now, mummy in Ireland has only come in in the past, say, 20 years. And I just wondered, yeah, I found it very grating. I'll have them change it in the next edition for you. It's, but, 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 what, but was that a more modern way of trying to bring modern into... No, but it is, I found it quite No, I blame the copy editor. <laughs> but there was one, I loved your ones. I loved your one where you're trying to bring it into the modern, and you say... You're talking about the man, there was, I loved the bit about the Salem Fire Bank, and uh, so we knew where we were settled and what kind of people. But you were also talking about the, when you got to the bank and George uh, was looking at the clocks and he was getting money under the counter and putting it in, <laughs> into a, 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 some kind of a deposit box. And you talked about the Olympian pair stressed, uh, dressed up in a three-piece suit. You were talking about the banker. And there was a lovely description went on to describe bankers and all the rest of it, which a lot of us here would feel very good about. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, I've got to wrap this up because there's another event here at 8 o'clock. But John and Paul are very happy to sign books from the foyer, and thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you.